Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. In today's special episode, in efforts to spread awareness and helpful information on how we can best manage during the coronavirus pandemic, Terry Tempest Williams will be joining us. Terry Tempest Williams is an award-winning author of many best-selling books, including Refuge, The Hour of Land, Leap, An Unspoken Hunger, Red, and her newest book, Erosions, Essays of Undoing. It is a stunning read and perfect for these times. She is a conservationist first and foremost, and a fierce advocate for ecological consciousness, environmental justice, and social change. Her writing is often inspired by the landscapes of Utah, where she lives, and her work is often focused on gaining a deeper understanding of our relationship to culture and nature. Today was one of my favorite conversations on the podcast to date. Not only is she a stunning writer, but is a stunning speaker, and she manages to take what we're all collectively feeling and give it a spiritual angle. We talked about the possible deeper meanings of what's going on in the world today, and the ways that we can each find our power to make the future a little different. Let's get right to my chat with Terry Tempest-Williams. Well, I feel like, you know, when there's, I'm sure you believe in the collected consciousness. And it's funny, because in the last two or three weeks, your name keeps coming up. It's like, a quote on social or in an email. And I was like, Oh, my God, I grew up refuge was a really important book to me when I was a kid, I was 12 when it came out. And I think you came to the University of Montana to speak. And my parents are big. And now my brother are big bird watchers. And um, I was like, Oh, there's no one I would rather talk to right now than Terry Tempest Williams. And then I got your book erosions. And I called our local independent bookstore and um, they dropped on a table for me outside and she was like, Oh my God, there is no better person. She was like, thank you for the reminder. There is no better person for this time than Terry Tempest Williams. So thank you. It's an honor and privilege to talk to you. Um, Oh, thank you. You are made for the pandemic. (laughs) Well, I just feel like we're sisters um, born of the American West, whether it's in the Northern Rockies in Missoula or the American Southwest here in Castle Valley, just um, outside of Moab and Canyonlands and Arches. You know, I feel that um, there's something about the open space and weather where as we don't take ourselves so seriously, but we take the landscape seriously because we've been humbled by it. Yeah. Well, it permanently puts... Um, it puts you into context. Like you can't drive the going to the sun highway and glacier and not feel awe and overwhelmed and tiny. Um, And it's that, it's that consistent reality check, you know, of being part of a bigger world that we've sort of, as you write about so beautifully, we've, we've lost that. Can I read to you from your intro? Please. Thank you. Okay. This is so, like, it just stopped my heart. Um, So you write, this is a gathering of stories, poems, and pleas in the name of beauty in an erosional landscape sculpted by wind, water, and time. It is also a book of questions. Whom do we serve? How do we survive our grief in the midst of so many losses in the living world, from white bark pines to grizzly bears to the decline of willow flycatchers along the Colorado River? 
How do we hold ourselves to account over our inescapable complicity in a fossil fuel economy that is contributing to climate change as well as ravaging tribal and public lands in the American West? What are the necessary actions we can take in order to realize justice for all? And how do we find the strength to not look away from all that is breaking our hearts? The paradox found in the peace and restlessness of these desert lands, where rock slides, flash floods, and drought are commonplace, allows us to embrace the hard scrabble truths of change in the process of being broken open, worn down, and reshaped, an uncommon tranquility can follow. Our undoing is also our becoming. I have come to believe this is a good thing. Beautiful. Um, and such a good, like I know this was written, obviously, years ago but here we are I mean what do you what do you what do you how do you not feel like what's happening is incredibly spiritual I do think it's spiritual as well as ecological political and economic on all these levels and actually I I didn't write that piece you just read years ago Uh, I wrote it in August and Mm. you know I think that question of how do we find the strength to not look away from all that is breaking our heart really is a central question at this moment in time Um, with climate disruption, with certainly now the pandemic. Um, And I, I do think that is a spiritual question. You know, what grounds us, what allows us to live and love with a broken heart and to keep each other close um, even as we are told to keep our distance. I feel like we're living in this moment of paradoxes and how to embrace those paradoxes as one. Uh, As you and I were talking before we started recording, you know, living in the desert and being able to come home. I've been teaching at the Harvard Divinity School in in Cambridge, Mass. And, you know, it's it's an urban landscape. It's hour by hour. It's you know, it's very human, very urban, um, high-powered and fast-moving. I'm not used to that. And to be told to go home, you know, was, was my greatest blessing. And now, having been here for a month um, under self-quarantine for 14 days, I have not seen another human being other than my husband. And, you know, it's it's such a calming sense of grace to be here in this landscape of red rock and ravens um, to hear the rain uh, to hear the wing beats of ravens you know that kind of stillness um, is so beautiful and so humbling and yet and yet you know we've been walking every day and I I walk also alone in the morning there is this sense of this low-lying fever um, that I'm very aware of. And I feel that as I'm walking, on one hand is beauty, and on the other hand is terror. And how do we bring these two, two hands together in prayer? Mm. That's my question. You know, How do we live in this moment of intense grief, intense suffering, and yet by the same token... Um, this intense beauty of of the quiet, mm-hmm. of this planetary pause that I think is asking us to reconsider uh, how shall we live. There's that passage in the book when I, it's funny, when I, um, the night I finished Erosion, I heard an owl here in Los Angeles. Really? Sometimes the owl comes oh. and an owl came and... Um, there's that passage when you're talking about um, owls and how they're your midnight muse. And you say, once I stared at a burrowing owl on the edge of Great Salt Lake and was given a curse of a phrase, if I can learn to love death, I can begin to find refuge and change. And I think that's what we're all experiencing, right? It's this collective essential loss, this undoing. And I want to talk about your conversation with Tim to Christopher too, because I thought it was so powerful. But this undoing of all of these economic systems that we've been enslaved to, and it's everything that we, we have feared coming to pass. And yet, I think if we can stare it down or learn how to sit with it, 
that we can find refuge and change. We can sort of embrace something different. You know, my brother, Hank, um, he's my youngest brother, 11 years. And I've lost my two other brothers, one from lymphoma in 2005 and one uh, death by suicide, uh, Dan, in 2018. And, you know, Hank is my bodhisattva. He is the youngest of us. He's the wisest of us. I think he's the best of us. And um, he has coronavirus right now. He's on the other side of it, but he is among the vulnerable ones. Um, he lays pipe. Uh, five years ago, he contracted um, desert fever and lost one of his lungs. And as he's been going through this, I mean, he's very stoic. You know, there is this tempest motto, you don't complain. Um, you're strong, you're tough, especially among the men. And, you know, I forget that when he tells me, when he called me and said, I cannot breathe, I think I've got this virus, you know, times that by five. And I was so worried and said, you know, Hank, do you think you should go to the hospital? He's in Salt Lake City. And he said, Ter, whatever is going to happen already has. I refuse to live in fear. And I think it's that kind of wisdom um, to be able to not only sit with that terror, but, but try and breathe yourself through it, um, that I think is so difficult right now. I mean, literally, it is about breath. It is, our breath is being taken, and we're holding our breath in the midst of this. And, you know, he's coming down in the desert on Monday, and I know that will be a great healing for him, and I, my heart will be calmed once I see him. And, I mean, it just makes me weep thinking about, you know, this is touching all of us. And certainly those of us who are in privileged places like the desert or, you know, having a safe place and enough food have this advantage and some sort of insulation. But really, we're all just organisms. And that's what a pandemic is. It is not something outside of us, but inside of us, of Earth, this virus, of Earth, our species. And I think that is, I find a great deal of solace in that, actually, that that we knew this was coming. We just didn't know it would be so soon. And I think this planetary pause is asking us to really rethink everything. I can tell you, at least I don't want to go back to the life I've been living. Um, mm too much travel, too many commitments. I mean, I just think we have to really ask ourselves, you know, what is essential and what is non-essential to use the language that is in the ethos right now. Yeah. And who and how do we best serve like that sort of moment? I don't remember who you were talking to. Maybe it was in letters to your dad of, do you belong sort of in the halls of privilege talking, you know, working at the divinity school, or do you need to be back in Utah working in the community college? Cause I know based on an act that I am like, I'm feel I want to, all I want to do is make a lot of money so I can buy parcels of land in Utah like you and prevent them from being mined. Um, do you think you'll do that? Do you think you'll go to the community college? I'll tell you what I'm doing right now because you know, these are the things you can't anticipate, nor do I think that you can even plan them. I think you have to just be present in the moment, and then you'll know what to do. I mean, that was certainly the case when Brooke and I, my husband, um, bought the oil and gas leases in Utah. We were not, that was not something strategic. That was not something we thought of beforehand or planned. It was in that moment when I found myself inside that auction, it was the only thing I could do. And we did it. We did it together. And we went after the oil and gas lease sale to the Bureau of Land Management office. We got out maps. We knew that I didn't want to bid during the auction because they could say that you took that away from legitimate oil and gas companies. Um, so I knew that afterwards there's a remnant sale and those pieces of land that weren't leased, then you can lease, if you can believe this, for half price. So we were able to purchase 1,120 acres of public lands um, lease, to lease those lands um, for $1.50 an 
acre. Can you believe that? That's less than a cup of coffee. And, you know, and we did it on our debit card, hoping to heaven, you know, that we had enough to cover it. And I think you make those decisions because everything in your life has led you to that moment when you could say yes instead of no. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you ask, will I, you know, stay at the Harvard Divinity School or will I come home and work at the community school? I think there are times for both. And a fascinating thing happened um, just in this past month. I came home. Um, you know, I'm certainly concerned about my own community and what's happening. And my own physician, Tom Miller, happens to be the, the chief operating physician at the University of Utah Medical Center at the U of U Hospital. And I sent him a photograph of a bundle of sage and just said, I'm thinking of you, please take special care. I can't imagine what you're carrying. And he wrote back and um, he sent me photographs of what they were doing to prepare for COVID-19. It looked like a military installation with Quonset huts and tents. And he said, we are ready. And I was so moved. I just said, you know, what can I do to help? Please let me be part of your team. And he said, you know, I'll take you up on that. The only thing I know how to do, Elise, is write. And he put me in charge of the woman in charge of the wellness center and the resiliency center in the hospital. And she wrote me the most amazing letter. May I read one um, paragraph from it? Please. She just said... Um, Dear Terry, I spoke with Mari Ransko, Director of Patient Experience, yesterday regarding employee and patient needs in the upcoming weeks. In this email, I hope to give you a general sense of the current experiences of the University of Utah Health employees. And then she goes to talk about the current experience. Quote, we have been selectively sharing the following quote from a U of U health hospitalist who wrote me on March 12th requesting support for his group. He says, we started taking COVID patients the other day it was fairly terrifying. I was nearly trembling as I gowned up for the first time like an intern again. I cooled off as the night went on, but the next day I was pretty screwed up. Reached out to my partner, who was on the night before, and she had felt the same way. Another younger partner, who had been on days, same thing, couldn't sleep. Nobody was talking to anyone, and all were glad to be reached out to. The three of us are trying to promote just normalizing the fear a little in our group, but until we get used to it, there may be a lot more of this, unquote. And she goes on to say, mm -hmm. I think this captures a lot of people's experience right now. I'll just read these last sentences. The fear, feeling out of sorts, and the hesitancy to reach out to one another. Almost everyone will have a different role at the hospital within the next few weeks. Operating room nurses are being asked now to provide patient care. A bariatric surgeon colleague will focus on general surgery. Military terms are now being used to describe strategies and roles. We have employees on the front lines and staff will be redeployed to serve in different areas. Simultaneously, there are many employees who feel of little use at the moment and like they've been left behind. As I read her letter, it was two pages, single-spaced. I realized this is something for a community of people. I can't do this alone. And um, I'm teaching a class at the Divinity School called finding beauty in a broken world. And we were meeting that Monday by Zoom, remote teaching. And as we checked in, I shared with the students this moment that the doors are open and they do need help. And how can we extend our gifts, whatever they might be, whether it's as a writer, whether it's as an artist, a musician, um, a clergy, etc. And I said, this is too much for me. I cannot do this alone. And this is my home ground, my community. But if you're interested, we could do this together and throw away our syllabus and create a sort of coyote chaplaincy. And they immediately said, yes, this is what we want to do. This is what we've been trying to do. Um, you know, but how do we organize? And all of a sudden, one student from the Kennedy School said, you know, my gift is organizing. I will make a spreadsheet. I will 
figure out what each of us have to offer and when the dates are. Someone else said, I'd love to be the liaison because I work well with people. Another person said, you know, and she's a rock star. She literally is an electric guitarist and said, I would love to create an original song. There's a poet there, an extraordinary poet, Ariana Reynas. And she said, let me write a poem. I want to start reading the, you know, Rilke's Dueno Elegies, and we can call it Rilking. Another person said, I write letters. Let me ask if there are people I can write letters to who are, are isolated or alone. And so it went. So 14 students, um, primarily from the Divinity School, each took that call. And I promise you, Elise, within two days, everything was organized. We had three weeks of coyote chaplaincy, a person taking responsibility for each day. And Mari Ransko, the director of patient experience, created a platform for us um, on their website called Accelerate. And we've been able to engage in this coyote chaplaincy. And, you know, to me, to be able to marry, you know, a, what I'm doing at the Divinity School, um, literally being taught by these students of how to engage, and my own home ground, even my own physician from the University of Utah, where I was actually fired for purchasing those oil and gas leases. There's something so beautiful about the, the cosmology of that, the spontaneity of that, the grace of that, that you can't plan. You can only respond. And I feel, you know, my debts to the Salt Lake Community College, which is where our son Louis Gakumba went to school from Rwanda, who had not completed a fourth grade education. You know, I know there will be a time when I can return there to pay my debts. And so I think it's, again, being present where we are in the places we call home and stitching together our communities into something whole. Mm-hmm. So beautiful and like such a um, wonderful example of sort of the ecology of humans and people understanding their own uniqueness and being able to sort of offer as a gift this idea that, you know, we're all special and unique. And that sounds so silly, but, um, or, or, you know, twee, but that in this, in these moments, I think it crystallizes our unique gifts and ability to help collectively move things forward. And, um, and like the real purpose that can come out of this, like a, a real ability to serve, which I think is what we're all so desperately longing for, you know, to connect to something that feels like we're adding rather than just taking. And that's larger than ourselves. You know, as you say, mm -hmm. as part of this collective moment, this collective unconscious that conscience, consciousness that is dreaming us into being. And, mm. you know, we can't know what spurs the act. You know, I had just written a long letter to my students because, you know, they were saying we need, you know, to be doing something. We're just sitting around. We're bored. You know, and I just said, you know what? It is enough to be called home to simply in this moment absorb what is happening. You know, it is enough to simply be present with our terror, with our fear, to watch, to listen, to pay attention, to tend to our loved ones, to make those connections with our, our friends and family, that we don't have to do anything other than that right now. Rest, you know. I mean, we're all so driven to do. I had just written them saying, let's just be. And then the next mm. morning, um, I read in the New York Times this opinion piece by a surgeon. And she said, this is not the time to lay on the couch. You know, and just, you know, just after I said, <laughs> just rest, relax, you know. And all of a sudden I went, you're right. You know, what am I going to do? And, and it just made me laugh because it's, it's almost like every day asks for another assessment. And I went outside and I just said my prayers. And I said, you know, please let me know how I can be of use. And that's when I got the, the text from Tom Miller, the doctor at the University of Utah that said, we're ready. 
And that's when what just came out was, how can I help? And then everything just fell into place. And I think that's when we know when we are on our path because it feels effortless. Um, that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't require effort, but, but the air is clear and the obstructions are gone and the students organized. And I thought, I'm doing nothing. You know, I'm just holding the space for these remarkable beings to do what they have been called to do, which is to serve, which is to see this as a spiritual issue, which is how you began our conversation. Um, Yeah. And that confirmation comes. But I do think you're right, too, that part of this, you know, this grounding that we're all collectively experiencing is sort of... um, uh, admonishing from the universe being like sit and think and be surrounded by all of this stuff and your the things that you've collected collected over the years and the detritus and examine it and um like don't be distracted you know there's no running there's no running outside to get coffee with a friend there's no endless distraction to um that we can numb ourselves with it is it is, I think, for many of us, a reckoning with this is the world that we've created in our own homes and externally, and yeah. it's time to sit and consider it. And who knew it would be so difficult? You know, I feel like the first couple of weeks I was just in withdrawal, only I'm not in a rehab center, you know, I'm just home facing myself. And I, I mean, you know, my husband and I, Brooke and I have been married 45 years. I mean, we love each other. He still makes my knees weak. And I found I was so horrible. You know, he spent all afternoon cooking this beautiful meal. And I'd been writing and I came in and we sat down and I just looked at the meal and I went, I cannot eat this. And he goes, excuse me. And I said, I cannot eat this. And I said, honestly, this is total. It just brings back all these horrible memories of going to Betsy Barker's birthday party, and I had to eat this this tuna casserole, you know, and I love Betsy. We had the same birthday, but I couldn't eat that casserole, and we had to eat it every, every year, and he just looked at me and said, that is not my problem. That is your problem, and he took his meal and ate it outside, and I just thought, welcome to coronavirus. I'm so glad you're a generous spirit, you know. I don't know if you've had that experience, but, you know, it's like every day I have to just stop and say, okay, breathe, literally, you know, gratitude. Um, And now just hold your fear in a place you can cradle it rather than have it come out sideways. And I think we're in this moment of reckoning, to use your word, which I think is exactly right, that we are faced with the unseen, the unknown, the uncertain. And that is really terrifying. And so what holds us steady? I received this beautiful note. Um, May I share this with you? Of from Victor Masievsa, who's a Hopi filmmaker and lives, you know, on the Mesa, um, probably a couple of hours from here. And he wrote this The sun is returning to the spring equinox, and ancestral dreams are preparing the seeds for planting along with constant. Will the rains come? In these days, I find myself responding to friends worried about the COVID-19 with the offering. This is the unseen world that is referred to as Quatemacum, the unseen that is now manifesting, the unseen world that is so effective, and only not seen because of our anthropocentric limited perceptions of what is real and alive. He goes on to say, the vast unknown connections and interdependencies that we are barely conscious about but about which the current conditions have awakened us to, some of us. We are not alone. The unseen is also present. We have to be humble in the presence of the unseen, as well as the living and active beings, because we depend on each other. With this, it is worth reflecting on the nature, scale, scope of compassion, and all our relations. When the seeds and our prayers are put into the earth, the reluctant rains will also be present, so compassion will be required. When we have moved on, safe, we must keep a reminder 
of what these days were like. I just love that. And I think that's really what we are facing is how to live with the unseen and to accommodate it, to survive it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know. Um, I read today in the newspaper, as you did, I'm sure, you know, FEMA just ordered 100,000 body bags from the Pentagon. Um, And I thought one of those may be mine. You know, one of those Mm -hmm. may be my brother or my father or friends. I mean, this is, this is not outside us. This is alongside us. Mm-hmm. And how, how do we prepare for that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, right now with 5,000 deaths, and by the time this comes out in a week, who knows what that number will be. But, you know, if we reach the projections, or, you know, it seems like many people know someone or know someone who knows someone who has died. And so when that is magnified so dramatically, there's no way it doesn't affect all of our family units. Um, There's just no version of being untouched, I think, by this. We are not exposed to death in the way that I think a lot of people in the world are, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet death is life and life is death. And how do we embrace that? It goes back to, to your original question, you know, um, if I can learn to love death, perhaps I can find refuge in change. I've never reconciled that. And I've been at the bedside of, of many of my family members, my mother, my brothers, um, and grandparents. But this is different. And what's it, you know, what will it be like if we cannot hold the hands of those we love, you know, Mm. what is that like to die alone rather than being held by the ones who love you and who you love? This, this is, again, it's a planetary moment. And I have to say, um, in the midst of, of the heartbreak and, you know, even confronting this with my own brother, I feel grateful to be present in this moment and to see what we do with this when we're on the other side. Will we go back to this kind of mania, or will we make choices that that are more sustainable and more community-based, um, where perhaps the most radical act we can commit is to stay home? Yeah. And, um, and maybe this, you know, there's understandably a lot of anger and erosion around everything that's been happening to our collective lands, our inheritance, as you call it, bears ears, um, and sort of the the denigration of the natural world for profit in the hands of a few. And that it's, you know, white hot anger, I get it. And and then at the end you're talking about Willie Gray Eyes and and he says after you know, that ridiculous spectacle in court, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. And I wonder if this somehow can short circuit that where we can all collectively sort of put down our spears and find a better way through. I don't, maybe it's silly to hope for that, but I wonder if it's possible. And I think that's the question, you know, is it possible? And for our listeners, um, you were referring to the Bears Ears National Monument in southeastern Utah, um, set aside as a national monument to be protected. Um, it was led by Native people, the Hopi, the Zuni, Diné, Navajo, Ute Mountain Ute, Ore Ute, saying these lands are sacred to us and they need to be protected, not just for our people, but all people that it is about healing. And President Obama heard their calls and through the 1906 Antiquities Act designated as such. Uh, Less than a year later, President Donald J. Trump um, gutted Bears Ears National Monument, cut it by 85%, and it is now open for business, oil and gas, uh, excavation, development, 
um, fracked gas, uranium mining, etc. And Willie Gray Eyes, um, as another part of this story, a community leader, uh, challenged the state of Utah on grounds of racial gerrymandering and won that case. And when he said he saw the open space of democracy open to Native people, he is Navajo, Diné, he said, I realized I had to step into that space and run for office. He ran for county commissioner. He won the, what I call frontier Mormons, my people, um, said that it was an illegitimate election from an illegitimate citizen who did not belong to the state of Utah. Can you imagine? He and his family have lived for generations at Navajo Mountain. So it went to court. Uh, long story shorter, he won the case on the grounds that I am a citizen, a resident of the state of Utah, because my umbilical cord was buried here. It was so moving. And it was a conservative judge um, in the time of Trump that said, if only we could dwell as deeply as Willie Gray eyes. And that's, you know, during this whole uh, situation here in our communities, um, both Native and non-Native, maybe with a name like Tempest, I'm not, I don't have much hope for staying my anger. But he said, Terry, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. And so I think your point is well taken. You know, can we take our anger and turn it into sacred rage that is rooted in a healing grace? Um with a language that binds us together rather than tears us apart. And I would say Jonah Yellowman, who is a medicine person um, in Monument Valley, also part of the Bears Ears community. Uh, after the monument was gutted, I went and visited him and I said, Jonah, what are your elders telling you? And Jonah's in his late 60s. He said, my elders are telling me we have to go deeper. And I think that's where I take solace is how do we go deeper now when everything we have taken for granted is now on shaky ground? I mean, Utah just had an earthquake, literally, with 500 aftershocks. Idaho just had an earthquake. There was an earthquake in New Mexico. Um, literally, the ground is shaking beneath our feet. And so how do we go deeper with this knowledge that the only thing we can count on, I think, is is our own goodness and generosity of spirit and willingness to do the hard work in these hard times to soften our souls and listen to this stillness wherein I believe all gods speak. Mm. I, now I'm crying. I, um, you know, in that, in your conversation with, with Timothy to Christopher, who went to jail for buying up, um, land at auction to stop the destruction of the land. He was saying how um, I love, I thought that conversation was so wildly amazing. And um, he was saying that, you know, rich people make terrible activists and how we are just, sorry, enslaved, you know, by consumerism in this country, I think, and you say enslaved by comfort and, I do think that's one of the potential offerings of COVID is um, in a way it's like the last thing that you want for anyone, right? But this sort of bringing us all collectively to our knees as we watch all of these power structures that we're so, you know, we're so dependent on when we, as we watch them crumble, we're literally 10 million people applying for unemployment, Um is this is this the opportunity um, that we have that we've been we would have no way of undoing on our own of moving into action you know moving through fear moving through grief and despair and then coming out the other side willing to do something different I don't I I I don't know and I don't think we can look for leadership outside of ourselves. I mean, we certainly know that with, with this particular president. And um, I just don't believe we can look for leadership beyond ourselves. I, I don't believe we can wait for someone or something to save us from our global predicaments. 
Um, I think that each of us has to look in the mirror and ask this of ourselves. You know, if I'm committed to seeing the direction of our country change, how must I change myself? And what is required of me? I mean, one of the things I admire so much about Tim DeChristopher is he was a college student at the University of Utah. And he was worried about climate change. He was worried about a little future for his generation. And he went down to protest the Bureau of Land Management auction. Um, this was in 2008. This was, you know, eight years um, before Brooke and I bought our leases legally. And what he did is he went in as an economic student into the auction and he saw what was happening, how these lands were being sold way up, well below market value, benefiting the oil and gas companies. And he started bidding them up to fair market value as an act of civil disobedience until they realized what was happening and closed the auction. Um, he had bid up, I think, 1.8 million acres, you know, and uh, forced everyone to see the madness of this. What was the cost? He spent two years in a federal prison. Um, you know, what is going to be required of us, again, where we're present to that moment and dare to do um, these brave acts of courage, or in Tim's language, I knew that if I didn't do something in that moment, I could not live with myself. And, you know, I look at um, our son, Louis Gakumba, that I mentioned. He is married, has two children now. They live in Maryland. He's working at one of the wish fulfillment centers of, of Amazon, and he's one of the managers. And he has been begging um, to have you know, hand sanitizer, masks, um, gloves, you know, for the workers. And just now did they get um, tents where they can be tested to see if they're carrying this virus and what can be done to help protect them. And, you know, we know that there have been strikes. There was a worker from Amazon just a few days ago that um, led a strike. He was fired. These are workers that are depending and living on paycheck to paycheck. And yet they're saying, this is not acceptable. And I think that's going to be required of each of us. You know, this isn't going to happen just voila. It is going to require um, sacrifices. It's going to require really hard work. It's going to um, require brave acts. But I think if there are enough of us, it's the numbers that I think really matter then our leaders will have to comply. And I think that's where we will see the leadership. Um, we're already seeing that with people like AOC, where the leadership is coming from the ground up, from a new generation. And I think for those of us my age and my generation, it's, it's time for us to step to the side. And whatever privilege we have, we turn and give it to the next generation and the, the people coming up after us. You cannot step aside. We need, this is, I think, one of the great tragedies of what's happening is that we're losing all of our elders and that's terrible. You know, it's obviously it's affecting other generations as well, but this idea that, you know, the people with the most wisdom in the culture are the most at risk and somehow to many the most dispensable is not okay. And I think what you what you guys can model for us because of the length of your lives. It's like in that moment where someone said to you, uh, Terry, you're married to sorrow. And you said, no, I'm not married to sorrow. I just refuse to look away. You know, we need more models of what it means to navigate loss, to let go. And to step to the side when that opportunity rises, you know, and I do think it's an, it's intergenerational work. There's no question and I can tell yeah. you that, you know, part of my day in this time of coronavirus is calling my elders to see how they are mm -hmm. and what can I do, you know, how can I help and checking in with my father and his partner every day. So I think it, it stretches before us and behind us and all around. And I'm mm -hmm. very aware of my native friends at Hopi and in Navajo country and in the Pueblos, you know, they are worried sick about losing their elders because in 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 their in their world their elders are holding um 
the past and the future with the sacred knowledge that is theirs. And so I think your point is well taken. You know, we all need to bow to one another and to mm-hmm. be generous with, with again, the gifts that are ours and to make sure that those gifts continue to move. But again, I would maintain not to stand in the way of, of a new vision that can only come from yeah. the generation that is, is living in that moment with the vibrancy that, that they're holding. Um, our, our gifts are of, of a different kind of nature, and I think we just have to have that kind of self-knowledge. And sort of this, uh, I mean, I just think about what's happened to native lands and and people and the environmental devastation. Just how, I mean, it is, it's so messed up. That's right, because, you know, again today, um, you know, our congressional delegation in the state of Utah is leading the charge to offer bailouts to the oil and gas industry, you know? Mm. to me that's worth fighting against and so Mm -hmm. again how to do it with grace how to do it um in the name of community um providing a different story a different set of values with alternatives in a just transition so again this is the deep work um and it's not going to be easy but i think it could be um it it will be transformative. Yeah. And it's like what you were saying, it's it's an individual act and it starts, we're not going to find the leadership necessarily outside of ourselves. But what's interesting to me is that it feels like on a local level, we're seeing leadership. On a state level, we're seeing leadership, um, not on a federal level. And that we're seeing it also on a uh, global level, we're seeing that sort of interdependence. And it's like, it feels very like we're getting to a place of needing to be more tribal in a good way of um, understanding how I'm not articulating it very well, but there's this idea of sort of like finding our tribes and understanding who those people are and how to, you know, protect them and that and extend that. And then feeling like it needs to be tethered globally to our survival on this planet as a species. Um, and I don't know, like that there's no room somehow in the middle, like the middle, the middleman is not essential and can't be essential anymore. I think that's, you know, a really wise point. And it may be 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, we will return, not go back, but return with a, a heightened consciousness of the power of the local, of small communities taking care of one another, rather than this global abstract world where we were flying all over creating this ball of yarn that can hardly be unraveled right now, and yet still have this planetary consciousness. And I think it really does stem from the heart. I'd love to share with you one paragraph, if I could, Elise. And this is from the open space of democracy. The heart is the house of empathy, whose door opens when we receive the pain of others. This is where bravery lives, where we find our metal to give and receive, to love and be loved, to stand in the center of uncertainty with strength, not fear, understanding this is all there is. The heart is the path to wisdom because it dares to be vulnerable in the presence of power. Our power lies in our love of our homelands. And I, I really believe that. Um, you know, I was so moved by, it was, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, um, not this Sunday, but the Sunday before, where there was a call for planetary pause, prayer. And I did it with Jonah, yellow man. And it was so powerful to just stand together, even though we were in different places, but to really feel that connection, the far away nearby. And I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I will. My grandmother was just a huge influence to me. We called her Mimi. And before she died, she gave me her what she called handstone 
And it was this beautiful amethyst that I, I never knew her without it on her desk. She was a great reader. And it's part amethyst and part quartz, and it's shaped like an egg. And in this planetary pause, I thought, I'm going to hold Mimi's handstone and just direct that energy there of the planet, of, of all of us at home with a prayer for peace in our hearts, in our bodies together. And I closed my eyes. I was standing in front of Round Mountain, and I just felt this heat. And I literally, with my eyes closed, saw this flame coming toward me and rising like a pillar and entering my heart and literally just being charged through my body. And I started shaking, and I just held that heat feeling the heat of literally the core of the earth and the core of each other. And what came into my mind was this burning core of care. And this went on for some time, no time at all. Time transcended. And when I opened my eyes and opened my hand and saw my, my grandmother's handstone, it had cracked in a hundred different places. And in one of in the in the scene where the amethyst um, was joined with sort of a clear crystal, it had been burned. And I I don't even know what to make of that, except to say that I think we have no idea of the collective power that we hold together, that it can burn through decades, centuries of oppression, that it can illuminate a new way of being that transcends gender, class, race, all of it, as we stand as human beings, broken and broken open in this moment. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Terry. For more on Terry Tempest Williams, head to coyoteclan.com, and I highly, highly recommend reading all of her books. I just recently read A Loved, Erosions, Essays of Undoing, and Refuge. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.